Welcome to the C.S. Lewis Festival Scholar Series. I'm your host, David Krause. Since the festival's inception 20 years ago, over 20,000 people have attended a variety of cultural, religious, and educational events along the beautiful shores of Lake Michigan. Most events are free. To learn more, simply visit our website, cslewisfestival.org. This podcast series features the 19th anniversary theme, C.S. Lewis and Friendship. Celebrated author Philip Yancey kicked off the festival, and joining Philip that weekend was Dr. Trigvi Johnson, Dean of Chapel of Hope College, and Christine Johnson, Professor of Theology and Christian Formation at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. The first in this series of talks is my sit-down interview with Philip at the majestic Great Lakes Center for the Arts in Bay Harbor, Michigan. Over 300 attended in what turned out to be a deeply personal interview with Philip on the cusp of the launch of what Philip said is the most important book he's ever written, his autobiography, Where the Light Fell. Publishers Weekly calls it a gripping memoir. And now, Philip Yancey. Well, I'm going to take a few minutes to uh, sit down and, and chat with Philip um, and welcome. It's your third appearance here. And, you know, we have a thing with our speakers that when they appear here for the third time, oh. we, we call a real estate agent. <laughs> so it's, it's about and actually we have had a C.S. Lewis scholar who, in fact, did call a real estate agent and bought a home up here. You know, it's interesting, you, uh, you are a, uh, an author, speaker, and a journalist, and each one of those could be a separate career. But when you are a young adult, you really weren't certain what you were going to do. Well, I, I wanted to play second base for the New York Yankees. <laughs> but when I couldn't even make my Little League team, then uh, I, I decided I needed to find an alternate career. No, I, I was not one of those people, you hear people say, I always wanted to be a writer my whole life. And, and I liked words. I found them safer. I had a, well, I have a memoir coming out. We thought it was going to be ready for, yeah. this, for this event, but it's not. It's coming out on, in three weeks, October 5. It's called Where the Light Fell. And um, if you want to read all my dirty family secrets, they're all in here. It was a very dysfunctional family, dysfunctional church, dysfunctional life. And um, words gave me a safe place. Mm. Actually, what I read was what opened my mind and helped me to realize that the world is not all like my church says it is, like my family says it is. It's, it's a different world. And I, I learned that by seeing where the light fell. On, on other places. So writing was my, I think my natural progression as I look back, I was more comfortable observing than living. <laughs> when did you know you could write? <clears throat> I was always on the high school or college newspaper, yearbook, things like that. I, I liked getting inside other people's head. I didn't like my own head. <laughs> 
So if I could write from their perspective, then I didn't have to be me. And writing lets you assume identities that aren't natural to you. When did you know you could be a writer? Um, I was in grad school at Wheaton and needed a job. So I went up and down the row of Christian organizations. The only one that offered me a job was a magazine called Campus Life Magazine. I gave them a few cut out with scissors clippings from my high school and college days. And they said, well, if with a name like Campus Life, we should have somebody on a campus and <laughs> we'll give you a chance. And I would write a few articles here and there and then eventually got a position the next year. And I had a, had a wise editor who would, who would encourage me oddly because this is what would happen. I would write an article in those days. I thought anything I wrote was, was carved in stone. You dare not change anything. And I would take it to him and tremble outside as he read it. And then he'd call me in and he would say, Philip, good work. The article is about 80% of the way there. And I learned that was code for tear it up, start over. <laughs> yeah. But he had that kind of gentle, encouraging style, 80% of the way there. And I, I learned how, how to write. You, I didn't, I mean, I had some native ability, I suppose, but a lot of it was just learning on the job. It, it is something that you can learn. It's like, there's some people who are naturally musically talented, but if anybody practices five hours a day, you'll, you'll learn to play a musical instrument Eventually. I, I always liked the comment that uh, Ernest Hemingway uh, made. A reporter asked him one time, how do you become a writer? And he, he said, by writing. Hmm. Uh, you know, simple, but, but, but very, very true. You know, uh, it's interesting. I, I did a, one of my early films was on a, a great motivational speaker, minister by the name of Norma Vincent Peale, Power of Positive Thinking. And I asked Dr. Peale, I said, who are you writing your books to? And he chuckled and he said, me. And I'm looking at your titles, particularly your first book, Where God, Where is God When It Hurts? You're talking about how you came up, how you were raised. Does, do you relate to that? I mean, do you feel like you're writing also to yourself? Absolutely. For myself, I was here rather than to myself. I, my faith is not easy for me because it, would, it had been abused and misused for so many years in my upbringing. I grew up in a really angry, narrow, fundamentalist, racist, mean, spirited church. And so I had these questions. Why does God allow suffering? How, how can this church call itself grace when they seem like exactly the opposite? What is Jesus really like? He's not like the person I got to know. And one time I likened it to... Uh, hacking my way through a jungle, say I'm in South America or Central America somewhere, and I know the Atlantic Ocean is out there somewhere, and I'm hacking my way with a machete with all these vines and small trees and things, and just working really hard, writing is hard work. And then finally, there it is, it's the Atlantic Ocean, I found it. And I turn behind me, and there's this string of people saying, thank you so much for clearing the way. But I hadn't even thought of those people. I was trying to get through the jungle for myself. The, all my books are written in the first person, what I call a personal pilgrimage style. It's, it's trying to discern what is worth keeping from the background I grew up in and what, what is what I should discard. Well, I asked your 
devoted wife of 51 years, what she felt was really your greatest strength. And Janet said that... Sex appeal. Sex appeal, yeah. yes. <laughs> no, actually, she said, I fell in love with his mind before I fell in love with him. But you were 17. <laughs> young age, she said is that you take eternal truths and you shine a different light on them. Uh. And I, I was hearing you talk about C.S. Lewis and his appeal is, you know, t t very similar to that. And, and I find that personally as well. Uh, and I liked how she phrased that, mm. shining a light, a different light. Shining a light. Well, in a sense, I... I have some parallels with C.S. Lewis because we both start with mere Christianity. He started with Plato and Aristotle and Dante and Milton and made them, and the philosophy behind them, made them digestible to educated people. But a lot of people you give C.S. Lewis books to like a miracles or problem of pain and they'll say, I'm supposed to read this? You know, it's <laughs> just too much hard work. But we have other books for them like the Narnia series and Space Trilogy. And, and I take people like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Mm -hmm. Chesterton. I mean, my heroes I, I wrote about in a book called Soul Survivor and Dorothy Sayers and those kind of people and make them digestible to maybe the people who weren't ready for C.S. Lewis. But we're starting with the same message. Mm -hmm. There are very few areas in which I would vocally disagree with Lewis. But... Um, we choose different forms and different styles because we do have different minds and different education and uh, uh, speak to a different audience because of that. Uh, as a journalist as well, I so admire the depth of your resource that you have, that you bring into your books. Um, I'm always, I'd, one, I'd love to see your library. It's got to be fairly extensive. Um, and how you weave their comments that they have made either publicly printed or, 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 or just you know of into your stories. And um, I have a great one from What's So Amazing About Grace. Uh, it's about on a chapter about revenge, which is governments, countries re seeking revenge against other countries. And you said, I found that a kind word with a gun gets more than a kind word said John Dillinger. <laughs> I'm wondering how long you waited to get that John Dillinger quote into a book. Well, I was living in Chicago at the time. <laughs> and uh, we took one of these underground tours of the Chicago Nobody Knows. So we went through John Dillinger's haunts. And when I, when I heard that, I said, I got to use that soon. So uh, There you go. Yeah. Yeah, you got... G.K. Chesterton, you've got Jesus, Lewis, John Dillinger. <laughs> so you, you uh, crass publicity here, but your new book coming out, um, and, and it's, Janet again said that this is a monumental book for you. Spent three years on it. Three time, I usually spend about a year on a book. This was three years. And virtually all of my, say, 25 books are the same basic style, the personal pilgrimage article. I used to not like the Old Testament, then I learned what it's all about, now I like it. You know, I used to, I, uh, this is how I used to think about Jesus, and then that was threatened for whatever reason, and I came up with different 
interpretation. So they're idea-driven books. And I, I started a, a memoir, and I, I truly believe, th there's a quote on the back, but it was the one book I was put on earth to write. Mm. Because I was cursed with some of the worst that the church has to offer and blessed with some of the best. That is my story. There are a lot of people, people, pollsters estimate there are at least 100 million people who would accept the word evangelical as a label. And there are probably 25 to 30 million who would vote for a different label, ex-evangelical, ex-evangelical. 25 to 30 million. And, and I've, I wrote this book, the memoir of four people like that, because that's, that's pretty close to where I was, being burned by the church. The church is a flawed institution. We all know that. And when I'm in a conversation with somebody like that, they tell me there are bad church stories, and I just kind of sit back and say, oh, it's a lot worse than that. Let me tell you about my church. Mm. <laughs> you know? But I also found that there's something worth hanging on to. Is there something worth piercing through the flaws of the church to look at that, the idea of the essence? Mm. Our, uh, our nephew sent us one time a bottle cap. There's a juice company in Virginia where he lives where they print kind of like uh, fortune cookies sayings on the bottle cap. And this one said, an idea cannot be held responsible for the people who believe it. And I thought, boy, that, does that apply to the church? But the idea, the essence, is worth everything. Mm. I mean, the church has screwed it up because I, I came away from my childhood with this image of God as a scowling supercop just waiting to smash somebody. And no, God is, is the, the Father hungry for love. God is that gracious forgive again and again. God is a Hosea welcoming his wife back even after she's broken his heart again and again. That is God, and, and God can't be held responsible for the people who go around using his name. But what an amazing thing that God trusts us with that message. I mean, we are the form God chose, hmm. the body of Christ. In Jesus' day, you want to know what God is like? Talk to him. He says he's the son of God. What do people do now? They look at the church. And that's good, and that's bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we'll be struggling with that all the time. And, and so my story, my story is to sift through the idea, the essence, what's worth holding on to, and separating it from the false messages we give. It, it was a new form for me, and I fortunately had a superb editor who just Every time I started to make a commentary or an aside or a comment, he would say, no, the story only, the story only. So I cut out all that stuff, and it's just, I started with 240,000 words and ended up with 99,000 mm. <laughs> because I had to learn a new form. And that's one reason I stand just awestruck at what C.S. Lewis was able to do to try one form and then a different one, and, and everyone kind of worked this, his first time through. Yeah. Early memories, what you're talking about, um, your early childhood, was this a painful process or was it more of a catharsis for you? The writing of it? Yeah. <clears throat> I know Janet, my wife, was worried because I tend to go out into the mountains where I'm alone in a little condo by a lake. Beautiful view. 
And I look at the view and I think, if you can't write here, find another career. <laughs> this is really great. It's kind of like living in Petoskey, right? And um, then I, and she'd know I was going to write about teenage years, confused years, uh, the death of my father, serious stuff. She'd be kind of worried, you know, is he going to be in a sour mood or real quiet when he comes back, what it's going to be like? But no, it was cathartic because I likened it to... Um, when you write a memoir, it's like you have a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle spread out on the table, but you have no picture to guide you of where the pieces go. And so you kind of put the pieces together and then eventually at the end you realize, oh, this is me. And all those little bits, those jigsaw funny shaped puzzles, they do fit together. And, and everything that happens to us is part of that picture that ends up. And, and so I found it healthy to, to put this puzzle together, to stitch together even the painful parts because God uses the raw materials. Maybe for some, it's worse. For some, it's paralysis. For some, it's chronic disease, whatever. Uh, for me, it was childhood stuff. And yet I can look back and say, nothing got wasted. Paul was right. Everything that can happen, including a lot of bad stuff in his case, can be used for good. God can use it to create God's poem. And, of course, sin can hold people back as well. Uh, and and I, I brought two books here in, uh, in part because I found with COVID that what's so amazing about grace and the question that never goes away, why, were two benchmark books, at least for me personally, uh, during COVID in that, and a good bottle of wine. And, um, this, it, it struck me because of, of, uh, friends of mine that will not darken the church because of their grievous sins. But you say, and this is C.S. Lewis put it, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you, exclamation mark. Lewis, Lewis himself uh, fathomed the depths of God's forgiveness in a flash of revelation as he repeated the, repeated the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. His sins were gone forever. You wrote, this truth appeared in my mind so clear a light that I perceived that never before I had believed it with my whole heart. It's quite a transformation. Hmm. And we need that reminder all the time. I pray for what I call grace-healed eyes because we live in we live in a society and it includes a church where we rank everybody and it's often it's by things like success and resume and what college you went to and all that. But in the church, it becomes it becomes a, a moral competition. You know, I'm holier than thou. And Lewis reminded us, it's not holier than thou, it's less holy than thou, mm. <laughs> with mm. a capital T. Mm. And mm. yet, yet, the amazingness of grace is that, that thou looks at us and sees not all those sins and mistakes, but sees his perfect son. That's my body. That's you, who I am. You say grace is the last best word. Mm. One word. Grace. You think of all the ways in which we use grace, grace notes on a piano, uh, 
gracious, gratitude, gratuity. They're all positive words. They're good words. Um, my favorite definition of grace, I was in Southern California, caught in a traffic jam. I had a Hertz rental car, and I, was, I knew I was going to be an hour late. And I was so irritated because I knew they were going to charge me 50 bucks for one more day for being one hour late, you know. So I came in, kind of put my keys down on the counter, upset. And the lady clicks on her keyboard and she says, uh, that's it, Mr. Yancey. I said, well, don't I owe anything more? I said, no. I see you're late. I said, yeah, I, I, I thought maybe you're going to charge me more. So, oh, well, we got, we, we got a one hour grace period. <laughs> and I said, well, what is grace? She said, I, I, well, I don't think they covered this in the Hertz training manual. <laughs> you know? She said, well, I don't know. But even though you're supposed to pay, you don't have to, which is a pretty good start. Pretty good start. <laughs> Sadly, I have a friend who had the same situation, was going to be an hour late, did not want to pay the $50, drove into Hertz, but he went in the exit way. Ooh. Do not back up. With the prongs. <laughs> shredded all four tires. It was a lot more expensive than one rental. <laughs> so you're, you, you have, I, I often think of you as the doctor for the soul. Because you, you parachute into horrific situations. I mean, you're talking 9-11, Japan, the, the 2011 tsunami, Hurricane Katrina, Sandy Hook, Virginia Tech, Yugoslavia Civil War. What draws you? I know you're invited often, but what draws you to those kinds of horrific events? I guess I have seen Christians that don't apply comfort in such situations. They either make the people feel worse like it's their fault or they didn't have faith or something they did prompted this terrible thing to come upon them. And it just seems so clear to me, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, he talks about the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And we, God's children, are to bring that same comfort that we've received from God and spread it abroad to a hurting world. And I... You know, if I had to choose one title for God that the world needs, it would be the great physician. Mm. God, it, Jesus healed. He didn't heal everybody. He healed relatively few people on the planet at the time. We know he has the power to heal. We know he thought it was important. We know he wants people well. But that wasn't his main object for, for coming to earth. He was trying to heal the entire planet. Mm. And that's a different story than healing seven billion wounds. Um, and that's what, as Jesus representatives, as the body of Christ, that's what we should be involved in as well. And so many times the church makes it worse. So because I've been places, my wife worked in hospice. She's as a chaplain. She knows what it's like. She's been around death. Um, we just feel that's part of our contribution as Jesus's representatives, messengers to bring a word of comfort and hope. At Newtown, um, two nights in a row, we had over a thousand people 
in an auditorium and you look out these grief-stricken, confused, mm. damaged people who had, some of them parents who had kissed their six-year-old goodbye, put them on a bus and that same day went back and identified their bloody body in a morgue. You look at these people just so hungry for some word of hope, some word of comfort. How can you not? Um, I face those things so they don't throw me. I've, I've endured some things myself. It's just part of calling, I guess. Mm -hmm. how, how can I not respond? Yeah. I think Janet used the uh, word, the, a bridge builder. That, and, and you two are very much a team. We are. Yeah. Yes, at, at, book, at book signings, um, sometimes I'll be a, there'll be a line of a lot of people. And so inevitably, somebody will come up with a really tragic story, like uh, my son died of fentanyl overdose last week. He's 18 years old, just graduated from high school. Or my three-year-old has leukemia. And you, I, there are 100 people in line. I can't say... Oh, that's too bad. Next. You know, I, I want to hear the whole story, but I say, I, oh, I wish I had time to hear the whole story. But actually, my wife is right here, and, and she'll tell me everything. Would you mind just talking to her? Because tonight she'll tell me everything you said. And so that is a team, and she's much better at that than I am. I, I'm more comfortable writing about it or even speaking about it than dealing one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Usually when they're angry, I get angry. When they're crying, I cry. When they mourn, I mourn. You need somebody who can steer a little different direction. <laughs> well, and now we're dealing with COVID, and virtually everybody in this room has a relative or a family member that has contacted it. Or Sadly, hopefully, you know, I mean, we've lost a number of members in our community. Hmm. There's one passage um, that really stood out, again, in the question that never goes away, why? for me personally, was, was very, very helpful. And it says, um, <clears throat> virtually every passage on suffering in the New Testament deflects the, and this is important, deflects the emphasis from cause, how could God let COVID happen? To response, how will I respond to it? You say, first, we can find meaning in the midst of suffering, and second, we can offer real and practical help to those in need. And I, I know just neighbors that brought food, neighbors mm -hmm. that, you know, things that we, we took for granted maybe that we also reached out. And I love that passage out of your book. You didn't mm -hmm. write that for COVID, but you certainly prepared us for COVID. With yeah. This. And actually, you don't even know this, David, but I plan to speak tomorrow morning. I think people are still welcome to come, aren't they? And McDivitt? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Probably. Yeah, we're going to charge you double the zero amount. However. <laughs> um, but anyway, it, it occurred to me, I, I wrote this little book called A Companion in Crisis that does a modern paraphrase of John Donne, who wrote in the midst of a pandemic. Here he was, the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, largest church in England, and a third of London had died of bubonic plague, a third had fled the town, and then he gets sick, and he thinks it's a bubonic plague. He thinks he's going to die. So he wrote the series of devotions, 
No Man is an Island, For Whom the Bell Tolls, became very famous, and you probably studied it in high school literature. And I called it a companion in crisis because he was one who went before. And I think we, that's what we can do. We can be a companion in crisis. And it occurred to me as I thought, how can I write about, how, how can I talk about C.S. Lewis? That he's, he's been a companion in my crisis. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote that beautiful, delivered that beautiful talk, Learning in Wartime. And he said, you know, the, the scary thing about wartime is you think, tonight a bomb may fall on my house. And it's scary. But he said, actually, that's no different than any day. <laughs> yeah, one day I was driving back from a from a book tour, and my car went off a cliff and went over and over five times. I ended up with, with a broken neck, and the doctor said, you may not live through the day. You may not live for five minutes if, if indeed an artery has been pierced. So it can happen at any time to any of us. The only thing about wartime or COVID is that it kind of speeds everything up. It, it intensifies it. And lessons that we learn now and finding companions that we can trust now can help us through those urgent times mm -hmm. when we tend to react, not real rationally, but just kind of reflexively. And that accident had a lot to do with you writing your biography. Yeah. Your autobiography, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. When I was, when I was lying there, we could, they were trying to figure out, I had a, a fracture pretty high up in the neck. It was a comminuted fracture, so it was in a bunch of different little pieces. And they were trying to figure out if one of them had punctured my carotid artery. Oh. And the doctor said, we've got a jet standing by to fly you to Denver for surgery. But just between you and me, if it indeed has punctured the carotid artery, you won't make it to Denver. So let me do the barium x-rays again. And then here's a cell phone. Call the people you love and tell them goodbye just in case. Wow, that's, that's a real wake-up call. So... I'm lying there and thinking, okay, let's see, I'm a Christian writer. Uh, what, what, what should I do? And I thought, first thing that happened, Jen and I were trying to climb all the 14,000-foot mountains in Colorado. And we had done, I had done 51 of them at the time. I had three left. There were 54. I thought, I can't die yet. i got to climb those last three. <laughs> and then I thought, well, what have I not written that I, want, that I should have written? And I thought, well, I, I need to tell my story. Hmm because there, there are other people who were wounded, maybe even for lesser reasons than me who gave up, who judged the essence by the people who claimed to believe it. And I, I want to show them a different way, hmm. not to throw out God because of the church. And uh, by telling my story. So that's when I said, I got, this is one book I've got to write. Yeah. And I kept, that was 2007. And my mother's kind of a darkly starring character in there. And, and I waited and waited and waited. She's now 97. <laughs> and I said, you know, I just got to wait. Wait a minute. And you were waiting me. and waiting and waiting for what? For, for <laughs> her not to be in the kind of condition where she could read my book. <laughs> oh, 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 my gosh. Oh, this... Oh, wow. You've got to come back, and we've got to Did interview you. Did you tape this now? Oh, my land. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, in the last minute or so that we have here, I, I can't let this get by us. Uh, a friend of mine bought one of your books because of this on the back cover. Uh, it was a quote uh, endorsing your book. And this person said, 
it's a lot to expect authors themselves to live up to the magic of their words, and it's very special when they do. Philip has a way about him that can only be described as graceful, not vanishing at all, very present. Bono, you too. You've had a long relationship, actually, uh, with the band. I'm jealous. <laughs> How did that all come about? You know, it's funny because I, I listen to classical music all day long. <laughs> and when we first got contacted by the band, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but I thought, I thought Bono was married to Cher. <laughs> and I thought, I thought you two was a spy plane, you know? <laughs> no. But, um, they had studied as a band, they had studied What's Amazing About Grace, and they were facing temptations. You know, what goes on in these rock concerts? The women who show up backstage, <laughs> that's temptation. And they decided we need, to, we need to ground ourselves spiritually. So they started studying the Bible. They had a full-time chaplain because yeah. they have 104 people in their touring group, probably more now. And... Um, he would lead them through different books. When they came to Denver, uh, we met some time ago and have been to his house in Dublin. And he's, you talk about a form <laughs> in terms of the trinity of creativity. Bono is the, is the one that people go to when they're on a drug overdose or when they got arrested or when their best friend died or whatever. Who do you call? Who do you call? These, these really famous rock stars, they can't call anybody, but they call Bono because they can trust him and they know he understands. And I, he doesn't always come across that way, but he's not, he's not ministering to people like us. He's ministering to people really strung out on the edge. And uh, there's a great book called Bono <laughs> by, a, by a French agnostic journalist. And he just can't understand and, and says... Uh, you know, how can you, how can you believe this stuff, Bono? And Bono basically concludes by saying, well, you got two options, the law of karma and the law of grace. And I'm going with grace every time mm. and, and explains that further. Wow. Awesome. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, it's been a great pleasure having you here. Philip will hang around. Um, there will be uh, a book signing out uh, in the, uh, in the, just as you walked in. And um, I also have to thank Philip uh, because our speaker next year uh, is because of Philip Yancey and it's Ann Voskamp, who some of you I'm sure have uh, read her books, Thousand Gifts. She's very difficult to, uh, well, she's very difficult to track down unless you know Philip Yancey. <laughs> then it's very easy. So uh, she will be here next year, but he will be uh, here uh, or at North Central Michigan College tomorrow. And Trig V and uh, Kristen uh, Johnson will be there as well. And then uh, I think uh, Trig V is preaching Sunday at the United Methodist Church, right, Ann? Yes. Yeah, uh, Sunday. And then Philip will be at First Presbyterian Church of Harbor Springs, which is Teresa and my home church as well. So if you want to get more Philip Yancey, that's where he will be on Sunday. But thank you, and thank you all for coming. Thank you, Philip, and thank you for your third appearance in Petoskey. 
Our next podcast features Dr. Trigvi Johnson, Dean of Chapel of Hope College. The title of his talk, Providential Friendship, How God Used a Simple Friendship to Inspire the Imagination of the Christian Faith. It is based in part on the friendship between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. This entire podcast has been made possible by the C.S. Lewis Festival in Petoskey, Michigan and its generous sponsors. To learn more, simply go to cslewisfestival.org. I'd like to thank the festival, as well as podcast producer Zach Smith of Hands Media. On behalf of the Lewis Festival, thanks for listening. Here's to Narnia and the North. <laughs>